Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The church says you're going to mess up. And every year, you're going to need to ask yourself, well, what are the ways in which I have fallen short of the Christian that I wanted to be? I've used Lent as an opportunity to to introduce congregations into that reality. People think that the structured nature of it means that there's less room for the Holy Spirit. And I want to say it gives more avenues. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome back, podcast listeners, and welcome to Lent. We've got a little something for everybody today to think about, to enjoy, maybe even new to glean for your Lenten practice. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. Some of you may have heard of him already. He has just released a brief, readable, and very wise guide to the season of Lent. And I'm so looking forward to sharing our conversation with you. We talked about our own journeys into discovering Lent and the church seasons as people who did not grow up in quote-unquote liturgical traditions. We wrestle with the relationship between Lenten practices and spiritual maturity, how ritual can help them or sometimes when used the wrong way, hinder them, the dangers of relying on ritual as well as the dangers of running from it. How do we discern sin anyway? especially in an anxiety-ridden, shame-saturated, fearful world? And is there a relationship between personal fasting and social justice? Or are we just hoping there is? Oh, and if your car breaks down close to a church, should you take it as a sign and go in and see what's going on? I think you might. And perhaps most importantly, speaking of cars, if your spiritual life were a car, what kind would it be? I, y'all, I don't know how we got there, but we did. We will talk about spiritual cars. Esau is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. He's the author of four available books, Lent, The Season of Repentance and Renewal, which we'll talk about today, Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, Reading While Black, and Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and has a memoir coming out in September. We will include links to all of these, including his upcoming memoir, in the show notes today. 
Now put away that chocolate and settle in. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You're working at Wheaton now. You're also theologian in residence at... Progressive Baptist Church in South Side of Chicago. Progressive Baptist Church. That's not a political statement, I'm guessing. No, <laughs> no. Blank. So actually, believe it or not, there was a split back during... I mean, this is a, a, a slightly more complicated story. But there, the National Baptist Convention during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a bit of a debate on the relationship between social justice and protest and Christian faith. Yeah. And the progressive Baptist denomination that was largely led by Martin Luther King and others wow. split off from the split off from the National Baptist. So they were progressive at the time mm-hmm. in the sense of being pro-Christianity and social justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want any of that regressive Baptist action. <laughs> the primitive Baptist, I know that we the thing that made us unique for me is that we have monthly washing of the saints' feet alongside mm-hmm. of communion. That was mm-hmm. our distinctive that I knew about. Yes. First Sunday was baptism. Second Sunday of every month was washing of the feet and communion. Wow. Which we call the Lord's Supper. Wow, that's some clean feet. Yeah. Brother, I grew up yes. Pentecostal and so in the Church of God, and I know about foot washing. There we go. We, we, we are the experts <laughs> in foot washing. My feet, at least, are ready for heaven. They're ready for the new creation. They are ready for the new creation. I am pleased as punch to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank, thank you, you for coming on. First of all, about your book, I just want to say... Yes beautifully designed. So bravo or brava to whoever did this art design. It is a gorgeous yes. book. Yes. And then in terms of the content, which you can take credit for, <laughs> yes, it is, I was, I was so impressed by the depth that you fit into such a simple format. So I just also want to say, and to listeners as well, that this is a deceptively simple book, which can be used as an introduction to Lent, but also can be used as a a refresher course on Lent that I was edified by and I enjoyed very much. Yeah. So I wanted to like there, you can have like a tome that people, nobody will read. And I said, okay, we want to have 20 to 25,000 words. You want it to be accessible. We don't want it to have too much jargon. You know, sometimes if you're not liturgical, and you visit a, a liturgical church, and someone sitting beside you who's been to the church for a long time whispers over to you and say, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And if they do yes. a good job of it, they don't over-explain it so you mm-hmm. can't experience any of it, mm-hmm. but they don't leave you, leave you confused. So it's kind of a, a spiritual guide mm-hmm. through Lent. Yeah. And so speaking of an introduction to Lent, we already chatted about this a little bit. I grew up Pentecostal. You grew up in a Black Baptist tradition, which are, can I just say, liturgical in their own ways. They absolutely are. You have your own liturgy. But then it's also beautiful to connect what you grow up with, with Catholic tradition. And I had my own conversion, you could say, to Catholicity and the sacraments. That happened on Ash Wednesday, interestingly, in a little Episcopal church in Cleveland, Tennessee, I'm curious, and you talk about this some in your book, what's your story with Lent in particular? What did your introduction to Lent look like? Because it seems like it had a huge impact on you. You know, God works through happenstance. I went to Swanee, and my home church is about an hour away in Huntsville. And so I would just go to the university chapel on Sundays. I wish the people could really understand when I say I knew nothing about the liturgy. And 
Lent was coming up, and I think maybe someone said that you're supposed to like give up stuff. And then I was kind of a, a bit of a fundamentalist. And I said, okay, what do you do if you're hardcore into Lent? And someone said, well, you should give up, you should give up meat. And I said, like, wow. So I gave up meat. And they said, you should fast on Friday. And I didn't know about the Sunday exception. I'm like, I'm like doing the like real marine version wow, of Lent. Wow, like ninja um, karate kid. Yeah. You're going so for like it. Okay. If there if there was like a if you get lent right, you go straight to heaven, I would have gotten this first lent right. But anyways, I'm going through it and each week is kind of a new experience. So I didn't know. Hmm. So when Holy Week came, I didn't know what Holy Week was. So I just kind of like, you know, they had a service. I just went. So I'm just sitting there. It's Thursday night, Monday, Thursday. They go through the service and they do the washing of their feet. It's like, oh, foot washing. I used to do this in my black church growing up. Okay, we did that. And then we had communion. And then they started like cleaning up the church. I was like, I didn't know what was happening here. (laughs) Like in the middle of the service, they're just like taking stuff away. And so they the stripping of the altars. Yeah. And it was real. I found it genuinely moving. Mm. And they stripped the altars, but I didn't know like what happened next. So they didn't say the dismissal. So I was just waiting for them to say we could go home. And so I just lay, I just sat there and like, I guess there's nothing else to do. So I just started like praying. And I found like I had a genuine experience of the Holy Spirit mm. while praying after the altars had been stripped. Yeah. And I kind of stumbled out into the, literally stumbled out of the uh, out of the chapel into the darkness. And I was like, oh, we're like the disciples who abandoned Jesus. Wow. And I felt like for the first time, I wasn't just reading about the Christian story. I was inside of it. Wow. And then I remember the, the silent procession of Good Friday in the Black Cassocks. And it was those, it was that triidium that said to me, this is a beautiful and wonderful way of being a Christian. Hmm. And so it had a tremendous impact on me. Wow. And that was just the beginning of, of this journey. I wonder too, Esau, over the years, now it's been, how many years has it been since that happened? Oh man, that would have been 2001, 2000, uh, this lit, it'll be 21 years. I'm curious, what are a few ways that you have seen the season of Lent make a difference not just in your life, but in the communities you've been part of. So as someone uh, who was totally new, came into it like karate chop ninja, I'm going to do everything possible. And then sort of learning more finesse. And now for 21 years, and now you're a priest, you're seasoned, you know, and then also you've, you've led communities, you've served in communities. What kind of changes have you seen Lent affect? The church in its mercy presumes that we're going to mess up. The church says, you're going to mess up. And every year, you're going to need to ask yourself, well, what are the ways in which I have fallen short of the Christian that I wanted to be? And so I've used Lent as an opportunity to to introduce congregations into that reality. And it exists outside of Episcopal and Anglican spaces. I was just, I'm recording this in my pastor's office at Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. And he was just talking to me saying, hey, Esau, I think we're going to do, we're going to do Lent this year. Mm. And so part, part of what I believe is that the blessings of Lent are not limited to liturgical Christians. Amen. And I, and I think that the, uh, the idea that Lent gives you permission to not be okay is much more helpful than some of the other ways that we do Lent, which is like 
sanctified ways to get in shape. Another thing that work on that, work on that spiritual muffin top. Yeah. (laughs) And, or, or like a spiritual, like another thing that you don't do, right? One of the mm -hmm. things, one of the things I talk about and my my editor pushed back on it, but we kind of made Lent up. It's like, this is the collective wisdom of the church. Like enough people found what we were doing helpful to do it over and over again. And it's been really good at producing saints. So why don't you try it and see if it's good for you? Yeah. One of the things that I noticed that churches often want to know is how do I do it right? How do I do lit correctly? And I understand the guidance that they want to use. I want to give people freedom to trust in what God might be doing in their context, which may be different than it's doing in other contexts. Yeah. And you do a good job of that in the book. And like your editor, I also want to push back slightly on something you said a moment ago, which is that Lent is for Christians who are not liturgical. But as we've already discussed, every Christian is liturgical. I know what you mean when you say that. Every Christian is liturgical. The folks that you're serving among and worshiping with in this progressive Black Baptist Church in Chicago, these folks are liturgical Yes, They're liturgical Christians. And so what we're doing is we're sharing in our common, this, this, this wisdom, which has been for the most part housed in the, the Catholic church and the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox church, this, this sort of like mothership kind of church, you know, you know, this is, this is, these are gifts. This is the inheritance of wisdom that we're, we're sharing in. I think I want to say this, and like, and I and I maybe I think there's always a danger of snobbery, but I'll say it, and it's hopefully the the least snobby way possible, is that I think that at our best, Episcopalians and Anglicans functions as the memory of Protestantism, Hmm. in the sense of it's really easy to reinvent the wheel and have a bunch of great ideas about new ways to to do church and, and and encounter people with the power of the gospel, but what I think Anglicans and Episcopalians do well is to say, you know what? These great things from the tradition are the heritage of Protestants too. Hmm. And we offer, like when we do it our best, we offer it to people. Yeah. You know, we've always punched above our weight class in America. So the vast majority of Americans have never been convinced by what, <laughs> by, by they should join like that tradition. But the Book of Common Prayer, I think, has a disproportionate impact vis-a-vis the actual numbers of people in our churches. And like when you think about weddings, you think about the the the, the old liturgies from the yeah. Book of Common Prayer. Yeah, you and hear so, it in movies all the you time. Hear it in movies. And so mm-hmm. when we do our job well we remind Protestants in particular of the great heritage that is ours as Christians and that we shouldn't cut ourselves off from it. Don't run from that which God has done through the church through the centuries. Yeah. And in fact, there's a line in your book that I highlighted because I thought it was very insightful. I've seen it, you've seen it. And it's it's a reaction that becomes the thing it's reacting against. And what that's yeah. spe- what I've specifically seen is folks who say, well, I'm not liturgical, or I'm not sacramental, or I'm not Catholic, I don't do that stuff. And, and but but in such a way that that becomes that becomes a really hard line for them. So that in pushing away from those things, they're not really receiving the grace either of the liturgy and the rituals and, and these these seasons we can enter into. 
but they're also not receiving the grace of of freedom in a full way yeah. you see what i mean so you you yeah. bring that out in your book too and it's like i think you say it doesn't do any good to run from ritual any more than it does to rely on ritual for your salvation yeah I thought that I, was great I, to point out i was talking about ash wednesday i think this is where this occurs where some people look at the public nature of ash wednesday with the ashes on your forehead and yeah. say jesus says in the bible do not practice your deeds before men and you should go in the closet and pray yeah and the idea is simply by avoiding outward ritual, you're pleasing God. And what I wanted to say is a couple of things. One is that the Bible is, is full of outward rituals of penance. You know, the whole point of the uh, Jonah is that the people publicly put on sackcloth and ashes. Hmm. And so what is the actual issue that, that, that Jesus and in a sense the prophets were getting at? This is where you go to something like Isaiah 58. Like, like why do we fast and God doesn't listen? Because your outward fast and prayers are not true of what's happening inside. So you're fasting outwardly, and you are then oppressing your workers, and you're mistreating people. So in other words, the outward display is hypocrisy. Then the solution to the problem isn't simply avoiding outward display. And you say it all of the time. I'm not like those Catholics who are having ashes on their forehead. I'm free in Christ. Well, now the pride is manifesting itself in its avoidance. And so there is no way as a Christian, to avoid asking yourself, what is the spiritual motivation for the action I'm engaging in? You can't just say, by avoiding the action, I'm safe, because even the avoidance can be a source of spiritual deception. Yeah. And so I think that the liturgical Christian have to be, we have to take the, first we got to take the criticism. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is this an outward show? Absolutely. But if, the, but if the answer is no, it's an actual display of my piety. Yeah, and, and as a discipleship note too, it can go the other way. I mean, if I come to Lent and I really examine myself and I say, well, I'm actually not that great of a Christian right now. So maybe my outward signs of piety would be hypocritical. But but really, if I'm if I'm coming to them in good faith and I'm saying, you know what, I'm going to take on these outward signs of piety, like putting on clothes, not to pretend, yeah. but to make me what they symbolize. So yeah. signs can be empty or not. They're empty. It's when there's when it when it is hypocrisy, when there's no in, when it's play acting, when there is no intention of of changing or loving your neighbor or being sorry for your sins. But even if you're just sort of like a crappy Christian right now, but you yeah. <laughs> but but you're coming in good faith, like maybe hoping that God will do something. And yeah. honestly, Esau, sometimes God does stuff with these signs and symbols and concrete acts that we don't even expect or even want him to do. You know, yeah, we don't I, have I, to have the understanding or intention. They just sometimes kind of just start happening to us. One of the things I talk about the liturgy as the liturgy is dangerous. It's like, I don't know if it's going to be the collect of purity, the confession of sins, the creed, or I don't know if it's going to be the ashes on my forehead, the stripping of the altars, the solemn collects of Good Friday. People think that the structured nature of it means that there's less room for the Holy Spirit. And I want to say it gives more avenues. And I've been, I've, it, it, it's never the same. Hmm. Some years it's Easter vigil. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Some years it's the station of the cross. Yeah. And it's the numerous ways in which we have the opportunity to encounter the living God hmm. through the seasons and through the liturgical life of the church. Wow. And, and, and as you're talking too, it's bringing to mind for me all the gifts that God 
gave Israel and gave to the Jews and gives to the Jews to this day, these yes. gifts of seasons and festivals and the law. And here's how many bells you put on the bottom of the priest's garment. And here's how many purple pomegranates you put on this kind of tapestry that goes on the Eastern wall. I mean, down to details of what you eat and what you wear and what kind of pots you have in your kitchen and what you do, you know, with your boys on the eighth day. I mean, all of these details of how to live life is just this tapestry of love and care. Yeah. Um, one, one, one of the, one of the things, and this is probably the most polemical that I could get in a, in a Lenten book is that I try to, I try to press that point that you just mentioned home a little bit more. I think that Christians miss what Jesus is saying vis-a-vis the, the ceremonies and the rituals of the law. Mm. When Jesus says, I came to fulfill them, he does not mean that this is a bad way of being, a, a to living one's life before God, and I've come to do away with those things. He's saying that those things find their fulfillment in me. And what that means is, when we take a step back and ask ourselves this question, which I think is a central question, God had a people. He brought them out of Egypt, and he could have used any tool that he needed to form them. Yeah. And he uses the liturgy. So forget about, like, whether or not you have to keep the law in order to be a Christian. Like, put that to the side and ask yourselves, ask ourselves, what are the implications of God's pedagogical technique being mm-hmm. festival, liturgy, and repetition? Mm-hmm. And so even if we want to say something like the exact form of the rituals of the Torah are no longer binding on the Christian, God's pedagogical technique of forming a people still has some purchase on the Christian conscience, such that we might want to say, if God formed the people about through ritual, festival, song, and repetition, maybe we ought to form people through ritual, song, festival, and repetition. But what do I know? <laughs> I'm just... I'm just a random, I'm, just, just a guy, I'm, a guy, I'm just a guy on the podcast, but I just, we're I just, just chatting that, here, two people with a podcast, hot takes, <laughs> hot liturgical <laughs> takes by Amber and Esau, what we should probably call this podcast, hot, oh my gosh, okay, well, if you have time for one more podcast, Esau, <laughs> you just tell me, we'll do little, we'll do bonus episodes, yes, well, I'm so glad that you brought up this, this point about embracing God's pedagogical technique. I'm just like loving that phrase right now. Because as I'm reading your book, it struck me anew, the deep relationship between repentance and spiritual maturity. And and a few examples of this that came to mind. One is learning how to be bold about naming your sin in the face of emotional fragility. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of shame and a lot of blame in the water. It's very easy to become an emotionally fragile person so that you're not able to face your own sin and dark side. Psychology is great. Therapy is great. Self-esteem is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Every child of God should have and have it with great rejoicing. However, being a sinner is really hard to face, but you're not going to become mature without facing it. It's sort of like you are forgiven and you're not off the hook at the same time. I would say that God loves us enough to want the best for us. And sometimes the best for us is hindered by what we currently are. 
Mm. And we have to face we have to face our inadequacies before we can become that which God made us to be. There's a fear. And why is that what is that fear there? Because I think that we honestly know that I'm truly going to follow this God who is drawing me to himself, that everything must change. So the very thing that draws us to Christianity, I can be more than what I currently am. What also keeps us from Christianity, because I don't want to give up those things that I am. The very things that are sometimes killing us spiritually and physically are the things that we hold on to. And God loves us enough to say, in order to follow me, you must cast aside every weight that hinders you. There are parts of the book where I just I wonder if I push the people too far who are not liturgical, not from the tradition. One of the things I talk about, like, were confession and examinations of conscience. Because I would say, like, God, when I was in my Baptist life, and I said, God, show me if I've committed any sins. And I kind of sit quietly for a moment. And I think about the basketball game. It's okay, I'm good. And I kind of move on. But it wasn't until I found those old confessional books. There's some, maybe some Protestant, even some Anglican, the Episcopalian thing is too much. Those old confession books, like St. Augustine's prayer book, that's the examination of conscience. And they list all the things that one might do wrong. <laughs> and I would just go through them, and I would be like, oh, I'm guilty of that one. And I never thought about it. Yeah. I was living unbothered or unexamined sins in my life. And there's something about saying, here's some things that you might want to consider that you might not even know that then can help you become that which God wants you to be. And it's painful. I mean, I have a, I have a 14-year-old right now, and it's like the, the perfectly wrong age because he's coming into his athletic peak, and I'm just getting older every day. I see him, and I just like, you know what? I can no longer beat my son in a race. You're going to keep getting bigger and taller. <laughs> and wow. so if I want, if I want to like still be able to work out and play sports with my kids, I have to exercise more. And sometimes coming face to face with the inadequacy, it was actually, it was funny because it was last year. We were doing the, like the turkey trot race. And I thought, okay, it's 3K, it's 5K. I'll just let him run out for all of his energy. And then I'll catch him at the end. But he had more energy at the end. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? If I want to win, this is what I got to do there's something that's currently a part of us that God needs to do work on. And that's for our joy. Did you know that a donation of just a couple hundred bucks to the Living Church will fund the production of this episode you're listening to right now or any episode of the Living Church podcast? Look, if you've been enjoying this podcast, say for a year or more, consider sending the Living Church a donation of whatever size TLC has been a ministry to the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. You could probably finish it for me by now. Equipping and informing church leaders and also serving as an instrument of fellowship and unity among Anglicans and other Christians in this great, big, one holy Catholic apostolic Christian family. You can go to livingchurch.org and click donate to give now or hit up the link in the show notes today. But at the same time, I struggle, and I think others struggle as well, discerning. So you you do briefly make a distinction in your book. I think just a passing comment, a difference between sins and hindrances, where there may be something yeah. that's a sin. There yeah. may be also something that just hinders you from a full life in God. But then yeah. there's a third category, which are scruples. 
Yes. And these really attach themselves to, I think they attach themselves to really good Christian boys and girls who love the Lord and want to do right and maybe grew up in church. And we, and everybody struggles, I think, to some extent too, with a false conscience. There's something that where your conscience still needs to be cleansed. I think it was Carl Barth who said, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can speak to your conscience. So there, I sometimes struggle myself, honestly, to know, okay, when I, when I spoke that sharp word to that guy today, was that a sin of wrath or was that he just needed to know his place because he was disrespecting me, for example, or, you know, if I, if someone's asking for money on the street and I don't give them the cash I have in my pocket, was that greed or was that prudence? Yeah. So how do we go about doing this, this very specific discernment when we're doing an examination of conscience? We'll give James some love. James is really instructive in how he uses the same idea to speak to different audiences. So in James, he says, you who are rich, remember that for your sake, Christ became poor. So for the person who had money, the the Jesus's decision to forego his riches to come amongst us brought them down. But to someone who was poor, he says, "Remember, like you know, in Christ you have all the wealth that you need." I think there isn't a it, there isn't a cookie cutter spiritual answer for every single person. We must know ourselves. So for me, I struggle with. I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a context where there's a lot of hypocrisy in Christianity, especially amongst clergy. And my overwhelming fear is people are going to see in my life something that makes them not want to be Christian. So like I'm hypersensitive. And I think a lot of pastors, for example, they might say, well, I don't want to ask for money in the congregation because I don't want them to think of this about the money. Well, that's actually a scruple that I have that I don't think it's from the Holy Spirit, it's from my own trauma. Yeah. And so I think that we know ourselves well enough to know, well, what do I need the gospel to say to me? Do I need the gospel to say to me, I am free or I need to pull myself mm-hmm. in? So takes. in America, in America, for example, even in churches, women are taught to, or are, are, are enculturated to, to kind of be small. Mm, yep. And to not take up space and to mm-hmm. give way to, mm-hmm. to, to, to men and other people, such that asking for what you need is something that seems to be culturally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways that you can sanctify that tendency by saying it's Christ-like. But Christ had power and gave it up for people who didn't have power. He didn't tell people without power to give up more power and then baptize into Christian spirituality. Yeah, And so if you're in a context where you're saying, and I, I'm not telling women what to do, so I'm not mansplaining, I'm hopefully referring to a phenomenon in society, that if you've been enculturated to take up space, not to take up space, then maybe you need to hear a holy boldness. And that telling the jerky dude that he was a jerk is actually what he needed to hear in Christ, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yep. you, should, you should do what we do in the South and in Alabama, just throw peanuts at people. No, no, we just throw in Christ in, at the end of it, and that oh. is sanctified it. I oh. told him about himself in Jesus' name. <laughs> I put him in his place, 
in Christ, you know, and then you got to be be blessed. Just bless them. Bless them at the end of it. I'm going to have these people out here saying, in Jesus' name, all over the living church. But it'll be fine. I love yeah, it. There we go. I love it. You know, I think if I were to put what you just said in a nutshell, what I'm hearing from you, what I'm learning is that when it comes to discerning, I mean, you know, you can always do this with a, pa- a pastor, a priest, a spiritual director, a trusted Christian friend. But in terms of personal examination, knowing yourself is so important, as many of the saints and Christian writers over the centuries have said, and knowing where to focus almost like sins have, there are like species and genuses of sins. So maybe if you know, like what genus of sin that you're most prone to, and you focus there, that might be just a good place to start because the paralysis of analysis can hit here as in as in many well, places i think and we have to learn how to recognize and call ourselves the liars that we are and that's the hardest thing to do because you could say oh I, i'm afraid of my scruples and i'm and I, but you know it like if you're honest you know who you are and you know how god made you and use that as a way into lent so if I'm the, and that's what I, if i'm the kind of person gonna be overly scrupulous in lent Maybe my spiritual discipline is not to relax during Lent, but to have a, a, a looser series of spiritual practices that you're going to engage in as a discipline, a discipline of like moderation. Mm-hmm. But if you if you tend to relax, hmm. then maybe you need a discipline of, of focused attention to who you are and what you need to work on. And something else comes to mind too, which is that might be helpful to someone, which is that if there's a specific person, I'm thinking of all the different people who encountered Jesus in the gospels. And as you read them, reflect on them, if there's one encounter that really stands out to you as what might be similar to your own encounter with him, like I could have been this person, here's how I might've reacted to Jesus. Maybe that might be a good place to reflect and say, how did this person respond to him? How did he respond to them? Maybe kind of do a, you know, you could go in indignation direction with that if you wanted to. Yeah. We just, Esau, we just played a game at my family Christmas dinner. I instigated a game where I had everybody say, if you lived in Jesus's time when he was in his, his earthly life, who would you have been? So it was really interesting to hear different family members say different things. I think yeah, the imagination not, is useful here. Who were you? Who are you, Amber? Oh, I was, give me a Hebrew female name, any Hebrew name. Miriam? Miriam. I was Miriam the Pharisee's wife. So I really feel (laughs) like I just would have made like a really, I couldn't have really been, you know, educated in all of this myself in in that time. But boy, would I have been an active Pharisee's wife with opinions. (laughs) Boy, would I have baked a really great loaf of challah. I love the rules. I'm a firstborn. I like structure. I like the rules. And I find... God's law to be extremely touching and moving. And I understand when the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It's like, I'm so glad, God, (laughs) that some stuff makes you mad. And I'm so glad that there are some ways that things work. But then the kicker is, it's God's law. It's not mine. And it sits, it comes from and sits within somehow the mystery of who he is. So without being in a in a trusting relationship with him, I miss out on the whole thing, no matter how many laws I know and See, how many I try to follow. 
you're such a better Christian than I am. You know who I thought? Dude. I thought I was going to, I made myself Barnabas. I was like a good guy, not the Pharisees are bad. So, tr- thank you. New thank Test- you so much. New Testament scholars, I know the Pharisees aren't bad. And I know the Pharisees' wives aren't bad. They made some what mistakes. Is, they made, made some, some mistakes. mistakes. What I'm saying is, you did not join the Christian movement. I made myself <laughs> oh. a person on the Christian team. That's what I was, was trying great. to say. Yeah, so like I was like, you didn't even convert. I was like, I'm Barnabas. I'm like, I'm like the nicest guy in the New Testament. So maybe I need to work on my humility is what I was trying to say. So anyways, I want to give an extended, I don't think Pharisees are bad guy stuff. So people don't yell at me. Especially when, if any New Testament scholar meanders into the Living Church podcast. I know, leave me alone. I, it, was, it was a slip of the tongue. That's okay. That's all right. We're playing fast and loose here on the Living Church Podcast. So yes. <laughs> we need, Lent is coming up so we can also repent of hindrances and sins that we commit we on, the, podcast. on the podcast. I'm sure when you think about, when you make your living saying and writing words, sometimes you just think, oh God, what will yes. I be accountable for? You know, all yes. the things oh that have goodness. come out of my mouth, all the emails that I've written, who knows? So Lord, have mercy on all of us who make our yes. living reading and writing and talking and if there was ever a modern great litany for blazing hot takes on podcasts good lord have mercy or something like that <laughs> that might be how we will say it for the blazing hot takes that burned <laughs> the unwitting <laughs> listener we're yes. sorry about yes. that yes yes now i do have one more question that i'd like to get to that i think is could bring us to some hot takes and wondered if you okay. had time for it Okay, let's see. You got me an hour in. This is where the takes get the warmest. Okay. Okay, we're warmed. We're just warmed up. This is no turkey trot. Okay. So what is the relationship between fasting and justice? This is something I found myself thinking about through a lot of your book. I have, here's one sticky note written on back and front. I have several of these scattered throughout the book. Many of them have to do with this question. When I began having friends who were Eastern Orthodox and being in their communities and being at liturgies and trying to learn about their fasts and their feasts and, and all of this, is that I realized that, okay, Orthodox people fast all the time and they're yes. very serious about it. And if you're a good, pious Orthodox Christian who have who has no health problems that prevents you from the full fasts, You are fasting on Monday. You are fasting on Wednesday. You are fasting for, I think it's um, seven weeks of Lent. You're fasting during Advent. There are several other fasts during the year. And that often means eating totally vegan. And I thought about, oh my gosh, if every person in the world were a pious Eastern Orthodox Christian, would we have such injustice in our food production? Would we have such cruelty to animal problems? Would we have cruelty to masses of the world's poor who are struggling in the agricultural industry? Like, would some of these problems just disappear if everyone was was a pious Christian who was fasting more often? So this is something I've thought about. And then as I read your book, I was like, oh, fasting and justice. I know Esau's yeah. got something to say here. <laughs> I feel like I want. there's two ways to answer your question. I'm going to answer you the question probably that doesn't, it won't satisfy you, but it might be helpful. The Paul, the Pauline scholar in me is rising up as you, as you pose that question. What if everybody fasted like they're supposed to? One of the things that, that is interesting in Galatians is that Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit towards the end of chapter five. 
And, you know, it's the perfect picture of Christians, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And you would think, wow, we all just did that. All the problems in the world would go away. Totally. But then, interestingly enough, Galatians doesn't end in chapter five. It continues on to chapter six. No. And in chapter, yeah, in chapter six, he talks about if your brother or sister is caught up in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them. And so it seems like Paul goes, here's a picture of Christianity. Wouldn't it be great if everybody did this? Then mm-hmm. kind of goes, when everybody messes up, this is what you do. So these two things live in tension with one another. And so, yes, on one level, if we all fasted, the world would be a more just place. But we're all sinners. I think there is a spiritual danger in assuming like if everybody was just a little bit better as Christians, all the problems would go away. When I'm in my 20s, I just thought the church is more fixable than it is. Hmm. And I just thought, well, you know, maybe we need another sermon or a better book or whatever it is. And then it just, I've just kind of given up on the hope of magic bullet Christianity. Paul often writes letters that kind of goes, y'all have messed up in 15 different ways. But then he also goes, but here's what you could be. Here's Mm -hmm. what you could be. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about like how long pastors preach and pastor and churches never arrive at perfection? So you tell like, <laughs> let's say let's say there's like ten major sins we all struggle with. Well, you preached all ten of them. Why is there still a problem? And we're like, well, well, that's just like part of being a Christian is to recognize that we're all in different levels of sanctification. Now that's the general answer of do I ever think if everybody did the right thing, church would be better? Yes, but fasting is a part of letting go of our dependence upon ourselves to open ourselves up to what God might be able to say and do in us. And it's about getting rid of the distractions of even food so we might hear the voice of God. And fasting makes it possible then for you to hear God's concern for the world. In other words, if you can't hear God's concern for the creation, or if you can't hear God's concern for suffering, if you can't hear God's concern for injustice, it's because you've crowded that stuff out. It's not that God doesn't care about it. It's not that the scriptures don't speak about it. But you you managed to find a way to block God's clear words. So fasting and even spiritual retreat and prayer and examination is to say, let me clear away all the clutter that's in my life so that I might hear the voice of God. Because that's precisely in the moment of fasting that you can say, wow, I'm entering into ritualistically a hunger that exists in reality for other people. Yeah, I am denying myself food that comes from this complicated, like I'm, I'm caught up in this socioeconomic cultural corruption involved in the production of food. And the only way to avoid that is by deliberately not listening to what God is saying in his word and and in the very groaning of creation itself. So yes, I do think they're related. Yeah. So I answered both versions of the question. Thank you. Got a two for one. Thank you. And you know, while you were talking, I was imagining this difference between, I just think one thing that I, that I struggle with is anxiousness and feeling like, you know, it's, this is such a common thing to feel anxious about, but 
it's never enough things, you know, something's not good enough and it's not, I'm not, I didn't use my time well enough. And what, and there's that on the one hand, but then on the other hand is this voice that's like, don't even try, just lay on your couch. <laughs> it's like, there's this, there's sloth and there's intense anxiety. But the thing is they're two sides of the same coin. And I find that that is not a, a space where I can really hear God yeah. unless something really bops me over the head, but that's not the way God wants to really work with us. So it's, it's how can fasting be a way to, in a sense, relax out into being able to hear God's voice. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I mean, this is not theologically accurate, but it's just experientially how I think about the world. I feel like certain people have different levels of like base sanctification. So in other words, like once they're Christian, their like default Christian level feels to be higher than mine. <laughs> and I and I feel like I'm not that naturally good of a Christian. So I have to pray all the time. That's you know so I mean? great. No, that's so, so great. Like, that's what I'm saying is like that feeling that you're talking about, like if I don't pray for three days, like just don't like, it's a totally different podcast. Like I'm like, ah. And so I feel like for me, maybe I'm like, they have like those new model cars that you don't need as much maintenance. I'm like a car that you just don't take me on a spiritual road trip. I'm going to do like every 30 miles, you got to pull me over. Like a 1993 Oldsmobile. (laughs) Yeah. With like 200,000 miles of spiritual miles on it. I just need a lot of spiritual maintenance. And I just feel like for me, fasting and prayer aren't, aren't just like good things that I need to do. They help me function as a Christian. And I notice the lack when I don't have it. It, it, it's just like my, I, I get out of spiritual whack. I could go in and say, my windows is, doesn't roll down. And they'll kind of go, well, you need a new radiator. That's kind of how my <laughs> spirituality is. Like, oh, I'll just pray. God, okay, you need to fast and like, you know, go on a retreat for, for two days. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe y'all add that to your Ignatian <laughs> exercises. Imagine yeah. what kind of car would you be in the spiritual <laughs> sense? Yeah, I love it. I don't, you know, if any of you immediately think Tesla, maybe, you know, yeah, Yeah, I'm not a Tesla. No, 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 no. Me neither. Me neither. Although I do like the mileage. Yes. Well, I have been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. We have talked all about Lent and it has been a joy. And I would encourage everyone again to pick up his book if you haven't yet. If it's too late to pick it up and be edified by it this year, of this Lent in 2022, pick it up for the next Lenten cycle. It'd be great also to teach from if you are a pastor or a teacher or a bishop. Esau, thank you so much for joining the Living Church Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Living Church Podcast today. We are a ministry of the Living Church Institute. And since we're a ministry, please give. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to livingchurch.org, click donate, or head on over to the show notes, and you can do the same. In two weeks, it'll still be Lent, and what better time to talk about Low Anthropology, a new book by director of Mockingbird Ministries, Dave Zoll. Oh, why, oh, why, oh, why do we do the things we do? Do we chronically overestimate ourselves and other people? And if so, what can we hope for in the Christian life and in the transformation that's promised to us? tune in. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.